Heavenly Father, help us to listen to your words in Psalm 51. Speak to us in our hearts through your Spirit, Lord, and guide us. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Every week as we sin, we will come on Sunday and we are reminded to confess our sins before God. And then we go through the prayer of confession. We pray that God will renew a right heart within us and allow us to serve Him in a fresh way. But do we sometimes feel worried if our confessions and our prayers mean something? Does reciting this prayer mean our sins are forgiven? Especially when we go back and we find ourselves stuck in the same pattern of sin. Am I really repentant? Am I genuine in praying this prayer? These may be questions that we ask, especially when we struggle with sins in our life that are persistent, that are regular. So what should genuine repentance look like? So that's why we're going to look together as we study Psalm 51. Now, we begin this psalm with a superscription that precedes verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, the first thing we see is that the psalm is addressed to the choir master. That is, as all psalms, this is meant to be sung together by the gathering of God's people, which means it applies to us. Now, we also see here the context with which the psalm is written. It is in response to Nathan the prophet's rebuke of David in regard to his sin with Bathsheba. And we saw in our Old Testament passage today, right, how David committed adultery with her. And more than that, if we paid attention, we would have seen David sinning in so many ways, some obvious, some a bit more hidden. But think about it, right? The nation was at war. Where was the king? Was he at the front lines leading his men as David did at the beginning? No. We see him at his palace. Just as Saul was hiding in his tents when the Israelites faced Goliath. So already from the beginning we see, right, there's something wrong with David. Right? So not being a responsible ruler is the least of his problem because King David gets taken in by the beauty of Bathsheba as she was bathing on a roof. And so we see David, the king of Israel, the holy one of God, the anointed king, the man after God's own heart, decided to have an affair with her. And then she gets pregnant and he doesn't take responsibility for his sin. Instead, he tries to cover it up by getting Uriah, her husband, to come back in the hopes that he will sleep with the wife. And so David's role in getting her pregnant may not be known by others. More deception, more sin. And he failed in this. Then he betrays Uriah and many others of his soldiers have him killed in order to cover up for his sins. So when God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David, to declare his sin to him, we see in this psalm the record of how David responded when sin was made clear to him. For many of us, King David is a hero from the Old Testament, right? 
Uh, we studied 1 Samuel last year and we saw that again and again how David points to Jesus. What a great leader he is. And because of this, this story of sin, of adultery, of murder may shock us. But the first thing we want to realize about David is that he isn't a good example to us because he's perfect and sinless. Obviously, he's not. David's gift is that it's not that he leads us in righteousness, but rather he leads us to see repentance in his life in a way that we too can emulate and follow. Have a look at verse 1. David begins immediately with an appeal to God, Have mercy on me! And he asks God to blot out his transgression. And this is a man, after having his sin revealed, does not seek to deny it, does not try to justify himself, does not seek to make excuses. He's not trying to lighten the burden of sin by giving excuses. He doesn't try to play down the wickedness of what he does. Now remember Saul? That was his way of dealing with sins, isn't it? When Samuel was laid, Saul took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, something that's forbidden. And then he blamed Samuel, or oh, you were laid, so I had to do it. Or when things go wrong, what did Saul do? He blamed others. The people did it. And yet here, we see David owning up to his sin and throwing himself down to God's mercy. Now, do you try to justify your sin when you come before God? Or not that, that you will make you know, something that is sin not sin. Of course, you won't do that. But do you try to make your sin look smaller, feel less bad? Or do you make it before God in such a way that, no, I really had no choice but to sin. I didn't mean to God, but He did that first. I only did it that one time. I didn't really mean to do it. And friends, these are not the words that God wants from you. Follow David's example. Own up to your own sins. Because as you make up this fake justification, you may end up believing your own excuses and think that your sins are smaller than they are to God. Now, one more note. The word used here for steadfast love in verse 1 has some deep connotation. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And this is one of those few Hebrew words that you, know, you just want to know and keep an eye out for. It's a word that's translated here as steadfast love. And it's better understood as covenant love or covenant faithfulness. It speaks of a type of love that God has, that forgives, that bears with fail failures and is abounding with mercy for the sake of the covenant that God has made with his people. So this is the basis of David's plea. I have sinned, but for the sake of the covenant love that you have for your people, please forgive me and wash me clean. And he can ask this because he has believed in God's promises and he rests on that promises to be made right with God. Not by his excuses, not by his effort, but only relying on faith in what God has promised. And friends, this helps us to understand, right, that the core of it, salvation is the same in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In both, forgiveness of sins comes because of God's promise that are received and acted on by faith. 
In the New Testament, we see that shape very clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that shows us how God deals with sins. For David, in his time, it's not as clear, but he still knows the solution for his sin can only come from God. And that's why he holds on to God's promise, to God's people in faith. And it is through this faith that David's sins are washed away, not his own justifications. So while David doesn't know the specifics of it, we can see it's still by the same blood of Christ that David is forgiven, even though David does not know Jesus yet. And that's why scripture tells us the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. We then come to verse 2 and 3, and we see three words here that David used to describe his failure. Iniquity, sin, and transgression. Now, all three words point to the same thing, right? So in repeating the same idea in three different ways, David is saying with clarity, his wrongdoing is fully wrong, no wiggle space. He has transgressed and gone beyond what he should do. He has gone beyond the boundaries of what God has determined to be right and wrong. He has iniquity, which is revealed by his moral failure, and how he has corrupted his heart to do that which he should know to be wrong. He has sinned in that he has acted wrongly and missed the mark of righteousness by rejecting God's word and thus his authority. And therefore, he has a debt against God that needs to be repaid in judgment. All three words point towards a clear recognition that what he had done is clearly wrong. And again, we see he pulls no punches in naming his sin as it is. Now also note, right, the pronouns that he chooses, it's my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. Can you see how this contrasts with Adam in the garden? Do you know who Adam blamed when he was brought face to face with God, face to face with his sin by God? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, Adam? Adam's answer was, the woman that you gave me made me do it. Adam blamed Eve for his sin, and just in case that's not good enough, he also blames God for causing his sin by giving Eve to her. Rightful repentance means admitting and confessing our sins. It's taking responsibility for them, not just declaring that I have sinned, I've done something wrong. And so we also know, right, that David responds in such a way that also shows us that he sees something about sin that is dirty, that soils his soul. So he desperately wants to be made clean again. It's as if he's nauseated by sin. And so we see him appealing to God. Wash him thoroughly from his iniquity. And he's pleading here, not just for forgiveness, but for the restoration of his morality. He's praying here for his heart to be made straight again, no longer under the corruption that sin has caused to his moral compass. And that's what iniquity is, right? Iniquity is the perversion of the heart that you start to say and think the wrong things are now right. And so as we think about it, we need to ask, right? Do we do that as we struggle with sin? Do we genuinely pray 
for our hearts to be changed? Or are we just coming to ask for this sin to be forgiven, for this sin to be forgiven, for this sin to be forgiven? Oftentimes, we only pray for the consequences of sin. Please, I don't want to go to hell. Please, I don't want to feel this shame. Please, I don't want this to be counted against me. But David shows us here that he isn't merely praying for the ledgers to be balanced in his favor. He is praying that God will also work on the seared consciousness of his heart so that he will avoid coming to this sin again easily. David understands, therefore, the power and danger of sin. It does not only lead us to do wrong things, but it also sears the conscience in such a way that it makes our sins easier to commit as more and more of our heart, our morality gets twisted. Have you feel that especially for areas of ongoing sin that repeats in your life, it does get easier and easier to sin, to justify the sin. The sin doesn't break you as much. And friends, this is dangerous. We want to appeal to God to not only forgive our sin, but pray for God to change our hearts as well. So that the next time we fail, we come back to that same sin. We come back to it with disgust and fear instead of welcoming it like an old friend who you know is going to lead you astray but always shows you a good time. So watch out for pet sins that we go to again and again, even when we know it's sin. This is a symptom of a seared heart filled with iniquity. He then continues on verse 4, and it seems shocking here, right? That he claims that he has only sinned against God. Did he not seduce and tempt a married woman to sin? Did he not murder her husband, Uriah? Is David trying to say these things didn't matter? But we know that David does not make excuses for his sin. But David also understands that ultimately, all sins are against God. You see, when we see all the sinful things, adultery, murder, lying, what we are actually seeing, actually the consequences. Just as fever and runny nose indicates that we might have an infection. In that same way, this behavior these antisocial things that we do that harm others, that we call sin, it's actually revealing the problem is within us. Right? And in the case of every art problem that we call sin, the cause is always the same. We reject God's sovereignty. We choose to do what is right in our own hearts. We have turned away from God and set ourselves up as God's. And friends, that's what the true essence of sin is about, rejecting God. So while we can still call these different bad things that we do as sin, the true reason for it is our transgression against God. So David is not saying here that he has not wronged Bathsheba, Uriel, and the people under his leadership. David is placing his sin towards God in a greater category of his own compared to everything else he's done. All these other things then pale in comparison to the horror of realizing that David has sinned against God himself. So the way to read this, right, is to see the only against you in capital letter, underlined, red, with exclamation marks in bracket. It is so stark and damning that by contrast, his other sins are almost non-existent. 
I mean, let me explain, right? When we steal money from our parents, the punishment will be what? They scold us, they get angry at us. Same sin of theft, when practiced in our boss at the workplace, we go to jail, career is gone. Now you try to steal from the king, consequences are even more severe. Exile, maybe even death. The nature of our punishment is directly proportional to the authority of whom we sin against. So how much greater then is the magnitude of sinning against a God who is so far above every power and authority? So when we realize that our sin is not just against each other, but we attack God himself with our sinful ways, we should feel the horror and the weight of our sins. If we shout in anger at our brother or sister, it's not just that we have caused harm to them, are we not shouting at God's child, who God loves? If we go on social media, waste time at work, we have not just cheated our employers, we have cheated God himself who demands that we work as if we are working for him. So ultimately, all sins are against God. And we need to see, right, that our sin is not just our failure to follow a set of moral commands. In sinning, we are going against God himself, the very God that sustains and holds us together, the very same God that allows our heart to beat, even as it beats sinful desire, our minds to work, even as we plot how we will reject God's authority over us, allows our bodies to function, even as it actively commits acts that are heinous to God. So if we realize that, we will realize what a horrible thing sin is. What a terrible thing we have done. So rather than trying to play down his crimes, what David is doing here, that he's actually admitting the magnitude of his error and his horror at it. This is a sin against God, and thus only God can forgive him. So we also see in verse 4 that David accepts God is right to judge him. God is justified and blameless if he chooses to condemn David. David says he has no ground to stand on. We do not come to God claiming that he has a reason to forgive us apart from his grace and his promise. The wages of sin is death and that is what we all deserve. Eternal death cut off from God. In fact, David clarifies this further in verse 5. And he makes the case here that it wasn't as if he finally sinned, finally succumbed to sin after living a perfect life and only now warrants a condemnation. Rather, he's saying, if my nature is accounted for, it has always been what he deserved. He was born with a nature that is sinful. It wasn't that the circumstances and situation that made him sin, they just revealed the naturally existing wickedness within him. We do not become sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we are by nature children of wrath, born with a sinful heart. And this, therefore, is his appeal before God. I am by nature a sinner. 
So won't you have mercy on me by the basis of your covenant faithfulness, God? How else can I ever be saved from destruction if you won't have mercy on me? That's the only way. Yet, despite this hopeless situation, there is hope. And David picks it up in verse 6. In verse 6, he tells us that despite humans having in their very being a sinful nature, God still delights in us when we are being truthful in our hearts about our situation and our need for God. And so through that truth of that inward being, God teaches us wisdom in that secret heart. True wisdom is accepting, admitting that we are sinners, we need God. And that teaches us that true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And that leads us then to come to His Word, to seek to be guided by those words, even as difficult as they are. And it is through this truth then, when we realize it in our hearts, that God teaches, God guides, and God instructs us. And this is why we are always reminded to be humble in how we approach God. If we do not engage by being truthful in our hearts, if we do not confess our sins as sins, then we will not have the wisdom that God will grant to deal with it rightly. Then we come to verse 7, up to verse 10, and we see here, right, that David wishes for these things as he comes in repentance. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David no longer wants the stain of sin upon him. He wants to be freed of sin and pure again. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He wants joy, gladness and rejoicing as the discipline of the Lord ceases and the lesson is learned. He does not see the discipline as something hateful, even if he puts it in the language of bones being broken. He looks back of it rather to something that leads to rejoicing. Friends, God's correction is to always be welcome. It is something that should draw us back to God relationally. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And here we see that David desires for a relationship with God, one that is not sullied by sin. He wants to be close to God as if he has never sinned. If you've been with someone who don't like you and they turn their face away, you know what it feels like. That's what he doesn't want. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And here we see he desires to have a clean heart and a right spirit. What's his solution? He appeals to God to make this so. And his desire is to go back to how the relationship was with God, to start again, and this time with a clean heart, a right spirit, so that he can try again. And what's the purpose of asking all this? We see it in verse 11 and 12. Now, as we look at verse 11, the initial question is, is David worried about losing his salvation here? He does mention being cast away from God's presence, that he was scared of losing the Holy Spirit. But if we see it from David's perspective, he has sinned. And he is aware of what has happened when the king of Israel sins. He has seen how Saul was cast away from God. How God took the Holy Spirit that came through that anointing as king, even as God took the kingdom away from Saul. 
So this is more in line with David saying, don't let me be like Saul, not knowing God and losing the right to be God's chosen king because I have sinned. And we see this also in verse 12, right? That his concern is not about restoring his salvation. He wants to be restored to the joy of salvation. And this shows us, right, that his primary concern is relational. He does not want the relationship that he has with God to be destroyed by his sin. And this is something for us to learn. That we don't only pray for forgiveness, but we want to be people who pray for restored joy as we come to know that we are forgiven. And perhaps some of you are aware of the joy that came when you first realized, God has forgiven all my sins, hallelujah. But over time, the joy may have faded and forgiveness becomes just one of the regular things that you seek as you pray. But we should be people who find joy in experiencing God's forgiveness. And friends, this joy should shape the form of our relationship with God. And with that, then we come to verse 13 to 17, and it shows us how the response to God's mercy looks like. Verse 13, we see that in response to this joy of salvation, David will teach other sinners how to find the salvation so that others will return to God. And in the modern context, David is just saying he will go out and bring the gospel to sinners who needs to hear this. And friends, this is not tit for tat. Rather, he tastes the sweetness of salvation and that equips him to go out and tell people of it and lead them to rejoice in their salvation. So does the confession of sin to God the assurance that your sins are forgiven lead you then to want to tell others about this grace that is afforded to you. If it does not, then see that this is what the effect of confession or being reminded of your restored relationship should produce in us. We are to go out to preach the gospel. We are beggars. Having received bread, we go to other beggars to tell them where they too can receive this bread. Then we see in verse 14 and 15, David wants God to open his mouth and use him to declare praises to God. So what is happening here is that David is confessing that while by nature he stands condemned, he wants to be the object of God's mercy, not only for his benefit, but so that he can respond rightly in praise and thanksgiving as he glorifies God. Salvation leads to revelation of God's character through praise and thanksgiving. Then we see in verse 17 that the true sacrifice that God desires has always been a heart change. It is this heart change that we want when we come to God in confession. Not so much that we try to make things by serving more, coming to church early, putting a little bit extra in the box as you're walking out. I mean, these are living sacrifices that we make, but it means nothing apart from a heart that is grieved from our sin. So don't be comfortable with the sin. Grieve over them. 
At the same time, this does not mean that we beat ourselves up about our sin. Because we do that to punish ourselves. We do that to help us feel good about how we are responding to our sin. And that is wrong. Our solution instead is to only realize the wrongness of our sin, to grieve over it, then come to God for comfort and for help. To try to self-punish shows you that you think that God's mercy is actually not enough. You need to add something to it. Then finally, we come to verse 18 and 19, and it seems out of place, right? Isn't this about David looking for repentance? So why ask for God to care for Israel? And the answer is, David is very aware of what happens when the leader of God's people fail. God shows his displeasure, and we have seen time and time again how Israel loses, comes to destruction because of the leader's failure. Think of Saul, how Israel suffered defeats after defeats under him. So as God's chosen king, here David is asking God to have mercy on him and therefore mercy on his covenant people on the basis that God is covenantally faithful. And we also learn here right, that in David, we see a need for a perfect king who's in perfect relationship with God, which David was not. And this is where Jesus comes to fulfill that, right? The greater king who surpasses David. Jesus was without sin. He had a perfect relationship with God. And thus in Christ, we have assurance that we will be guarded by God for his good purpose according to his good will. So do take comfort that we do have a perfect king, not flawed like David, but Jesus Christ himself who intercedes on our behalf. If God shows mercy to sinful, imperfect David and Israel underneath him, then how much more does God save people under Jesus? We are assured forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal hope. Not just because we have a perfect and sinless king in Christ, but also because that king died on the cross and took the punishment for us. And because of that, there is now no more condemnation. We can come before God. We can find forgiveness in God. We need to admit our sin. We need to take ownership of our failures as we come to God. We need to ask forgiveness on the basis of His mercy and grace alone. And don't try to add in things to justify yourself before God. So, having a clearer picture of God's forgiveness in Christ, we can come before God with confidence. God forgives if you're genuine. So let us then seek to do so from now on. Let us avoid seeing our weekly confession as just something that we do. And friends, if our heart is right, it is a meaningful confession that leads us to be right with God. But if our heart is not right, then we can say it a hundred thousand times and it will be despised by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to repent rightly. Help us to see that victory over sin does not come from us, but from you. 
So even as we agonize over sin, Father, let us not come before you with shame, but let us come bearing the full weight of our sin, knowing that you are a God who forgives, who restores, who makes us clean, and enables us to live and serve you in a right way. Amen.